0: Psalm forty-seven. Now, our goal is that at the end of the night, everybody can say they remember something about this psalm. Something stands out, and uh, but Psalm forty-seven, it says for the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Let me ask you, as w- after we finish reading, what does stand out? Oh, clap your hands, O peoples! Shout to God with the voice of joy. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us, and nations under our feet. (coughs) He chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob whom he loves. Salah. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet, Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. The shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Okay? What stands out there in Psalm 47?
1: Sing praises.
0: Okay? Sing praises. Sing praises. Uh, Particularly, let's notice that when we get to verse 6. Because I think verse 6 is interesting in that regard. But as one writer said, "This is a noisy psalm." <laughs> I think it's a good description. It is a noisy psalm. Clap you people, shout to the Lord, sing praises. It is a loud psalm. And also, as we teach you to look for, to look for God, and I did not count uh, but one writer stated that in the psalm, God is mentioned 11 times. 11 times in 9 verses, there are references to God. And so, first of all, whatever it teaches, is going to teach us something about Him and who He is. What are some reasons we sing praises within this psalm? What are some reasons we lift up His name? Our king. He is king. That is affirmed quite frequently in uh, this particular psalm. Uh, in verse 2, the Lord Most High is to be feared a great king over all the earth. And we'll say more, Lord willing, about that. But the psalms that emphasize God as king, there's a heavy concentration On Psalms that deal with God as king, Psalms 93, Psalms 95 through 99. Now, there are also some elements of 94. 94 doesn't say God is king. It doesn't say God reigns. But God there is enforcing justice, which ultimately a king does. So I think it ties with this particular idea. And so God as king is one of the key points of the psalm. When we get to verse 2, we'll point out other places where this is used. Anything else you want to say in a preliminary way about Psalm 47? Just kind of beginning. Mary?
1: He subdues our enemies, you have that in verse 3 and then verse 9, the shields of the earth belong to him, so he's our protector.
0: Okay, he is our protector and defender and the one who gives victory in conflict. So, yes, very good. Okay. Verse 1, or beginning in the title, of course, the sons of Korah. We've seen that 43 didn't have a title, but all 42 through 49 mentioned the sons of Korah. And he says, clap your hands, all peoples. Now, this word, peoples, is going to be a key word in the psalm. Uh, it's going to be used... Clap your hands, O peoples. It is not just Israel that is called to praise God here in this psalm, but it is all peoples in verse 1. And you also see this in verse 3. He subdues peoples, the idea that Mary was expressing just a moment ago. And then in verse 9, the Bible uses the uh, singular uh, the princes of the people uh, have assembled themselves as the people uh, of God. But you see this word people used quite frequently in the psalm. Oh, clap your hands, O peoples. Shout to the Lord with a voice of joy. Now, I want you to notice that verse 2 begins with the word for. In Hebrew, this is just a very short word. And this word often introduces in the Psalms the reason for praise. And this particular word is going to be used in this Psalm here in verse 2. It's going to be used also in verse 7 and verse 9. And it's translated each time in the New American Standard Bible with the English word "for," but the point is, verse one: you're called. We are called. All peoples are called to clap our hands, to shout to God with joy. And then in verse two, a reason why: for the Lord is the Most High. The Lord Most High is a God. The Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. The Lord is God Most High. Now, the term which is used here is Elion. Do you remember an Old Testament uh, case where that term is particularly prominent? An Old Testament passage. Genesis
2: 17.
0: It's Genesis 14 with Melchizedek. Genesis 14. And Melchizedek is is king and priest of God Most High. I think the term is used four times from Genesis 14, verses 18 through 22. And, And it's often used in a context in which Israel and foreigners are interacting. Now that may make a difference because you know it's a situation basically that you find in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 22. The Lord Most High is to be feared. Uh, the the King James version I was looking at that and it says. Terrible here, but in the sense of causing terror or fear is the New American Standard. Some of your versions have awesome here. And all of these, uh, express the idea that God is all inspiring. The Lord Most High is to be feared. He is all inspiring. He is a great king, a great king. Over all the earth. Now, the idea of God as king is stressed here in verse 2. A great king over all the earth. In verse 7, God is the king of all the earth. Um, I'm leaving out a verse. Verse 6.
1: Verse Verse
0: Verse 6, that's right. It up in order, verse 6, verse 7. In verse 8, the text says, He reigns. Now, that is the same word simply used as a verb in verse 8. Same word, um, the same Hebrew word translated king is used as a verb and, and says, He reigns. To try to stress, to try to stress this idea of of how those psalms that I wrote on the board, ninety three through ninety nine, uh, express a lot of these ideas of of God as king or God reigning. For example, God reigning, God is said to reign in ninety three one, ninety 99. All of these passages stress that God uh, reigns. And uh, also, these Psalms stress that He is king. And I have Psalm 95, 1 and 2. No, excuse me, that's another list. Okay, apologize because I'm not seeing that list quickly. I want. Let's go back to verse one just a second. This ties with the idea of God is King. Okay. Shout to God with a loud voice. Clap your hands. Why are, Shout. Okay. Why are they
3: clapping? At,
0: at, at God's. Well, okay. Let's just say it this way. Let me read a few passages where they're shouting and clapping. Okay. And. See if you see a common element here, but that that demands that I not give much context, okay? Because if I give too much context, it kind of gives away the answer. But First Samuel, First Samuel ten, verse twenty-four. First Samuel ten, verse twenty-four. My guess is you're going to know this context pretty well. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted, Long live the King. Almost self-evident there what the context is. In 2 Samuel 10, 2 Samuel 15, verse 10. Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. In 1 Kings chapter 1, in verse 39, the Bible says, Zadok the priest then took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And then they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live the king. Two more. 2 Samuel, excuse me, Second Kings 9, 2 Kings 9, verse 13, they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under uh, the on, under him on bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying Jehu is king. And second Samuel eleven verse twelve. Samuel eleven verse twelve, they brought the king's son out. This is Joash. Or Jehoash, they put a crown on his head, gave him the testimony, they made him king and anointed him, and clapped their hands and
3: said, "Long live the king!" Okay, John, how many of those references were actually kings? All of them. Okay, You've all them. Samuel. Twice. Yeah, you so. Just, just okay. that last, well, last one. Okay, second. it was second. The last
0: reference was Second Kings eleven and twelve. Okay, I'll write them down because you are. I won't tell you something. Even if I stand up here and I give you the wrong passage, you write it down on the test and I'll count it wrong. <laughs> so I so want you to know that. So you better get this down, people. Second, first Samuel 10, um, 24. 2 Samuel 15, 10. 1 Kings 1, 39, and then the two last were in 2 Kings, 2 Kings 9, 13, and 2 Kings 11, 12. But all of them deal with someone becoming king. Now, obviously, Absalom should not have been king, but he is proclaiming himself king. And uh, Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 39, 2 Kings 9, Jehu, and then Joash or Jehoash, king of Israel, king of Judah, excuse me. But all of these are kings. And so, what that still means the first one. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Samuel was doing the anointing. Saul. So you would get it wrong on the test. Well, I would get it wrong. I would get it wrong as well. I would get
1: it wrong. Yes. But uh, the clapping is just like blowing the trumpet or whatever.
0: In this particular case, the clapping, the blowing of the trumpet, uh, is part of the noisy acclaim as someone comes to the throne. It seems like to me. It seems that like that is the
1: stress, David. So it wouldn't be like we do today. One of the greatest things of honor we could do for someone is to clap for them, give them an ovation, especially a standing ovation. Yes. So is that similar to this, or is that kind of different? Uh, you, you're saying if we just... would. Would that have been a normal practice if you were trying to show someone honor to give them an elevation back at that time? I I don't know. You know, because all we have to go on is
0: here, Uh, is a few texts. There are enough references that it was obviously a part of some of these references to a person becoming king. Especially this last one in Second Kings eleven twelve. I don't remember how many of the rest mentioned clapping. So whether that was a general response in that time, I don't know. I, I don't know. I can't find, I can't remember any of any examples of that outside. Outside of coronations of kings the Old Testament. And you do have Isaiah 55, verse 12. <clears throat> was the trees called to clap their hands?
1: Um, I've got my notes. Psalm 98, 8. The rivers clap their hands. And that's in a context where he shouts joyfully before the king the Lord.
0: Yes. yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank
3: you. Yes. Well, we were listening to Brent Kirchable And he said this clapping was like giving your...
2: Your agreement. Like, give me a high five on that.
3: That was the note that I had written. I don't know where it came from, but it was not clapping for joy, but clapping in agreement uh, regarding the relationship with God, a striking of hand.
0: Well, you do see references like that in Proverbs. Yes. You do find, and here are a few, Proverbs 11 and verse 15 does mention the word uh, clapping like that. Um, and you don't always see this in English translations, I will say. But in Proverbs 11, verse 15, this is what the English translation says. He who is a surety for strangers will surely suffer for it. He who hates going surety is safe. I think that's there, he who claps hands yeah. with. seventeen, eighteen, Proverbs 17, 18, a man lacking sense pledges, but it becomes... Sh- And become surety in the presence of his neighbor. And then also 22 verse 26. 22 verse 26. Do not be among those who give pledges. So there are places where that is used in the sense of kind of making an agreement uh joining with somebody particularly in those passages in paying uh their debts. Now, uh all these cases uh it doesn't seem like that is a good idea of of assuming financial responsibility. But can it have that significance of to be in agreement with someone in such a circumstance? Yes. It can have that. Um, so it can show celebration at the coronation of a king and it can have that significance of being in agreement with someone. Okay. Any other hard questions? Well, that so I can't answer? you brought
3: up peoples in verse one. Okay. Well and other verses. Is that intended to be synonymous with with, like verse 8, where God reigns over nations? Is it, is it intended to convey the same idea, peoples or nations?
0: It is in, in Psalm 2.1. It's used in parallelism. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? It, it, it would make sense to me, yes, that base, there, there might be some slight distinction, but basically those terms <laughs> seem to be parallel. Yes. Yes, they do. Okay. Um, but, I, so I do think all of this, even their response that's called forth in verse 1, it is all a picture of God as king and helping us to see Him as, as a king. And He is described in verse 2, and this is again 47 verse 2, He's called a great king. When the king of Assyria, sends a message to Hezekiah. He says, the great king. He speaks to himself that way. The great king, the king of Assyria. It's parallel, by the way, in 2 Kings 18 and verse 19. And here the Lord introduces Himself this way. He is a great king over all the earth. Tomorrow night, Lord willing, in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, for those of you that are in that class, we're going to see that God gave uh, the people of Edom their land. God gave the Moabites their land. God gave the Ammonites their land. God is God of all the earth. And therefore he divides up the land of all the nations. For the Lord most high is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdues peoples under us. Now the hard question here, since this is a verse one, are the peoples of verse one praising uh, freely, or are they praising reluctantly? Because they are the same peoples, it seems, who are subdued in verse three. But he subdues peoples under us and nations. Under our feet. There, John, those terms seem to be used uh, interchangeably. And what you see in the Old Testament, and you had an example of this uh, in Joshua uh, Joshua 10 verse 24, is you find (coughs) under the feet that sometimes after an enemy was conquered, The five kings of Canaan are brought out and the Israelite soldiers put their feet on their necks. That's a way to show we have completely defeated you. We have completely subjected you. uh, And this is what God does in this particular passage. He subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chooses our inheritance for us. Uh, what John pointed out just a second ago though is important to see how terms are used in parallelism. For example, in verse 4, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. What is the glory of Jacob? Well, look, it seems to be used in parallelism with the inheritance And so in this particular context, it seems like to me the best explanation for the glory of Jacob is the land God has given Israel. And this is a concrete example. The book of Joshua, as God defeats these nations of the land of Canaan, it is a concrete example that God is king of all the earth and He subdues peoples and nations under us. And He chooses our inheritance, the glory of Jacob, whom He Loves. The glory of Jacob, whom he loves. And I think the, the part about God's love particularly applies to Jacob, Jacob's descendants, the people of Israel. Derek Kidner here says um, any statement of God's love always provokes the question of why, which is equally unanswerable, whether the object of the love is Jacob or me. Or the church. Or the world. Now think about that. Why does God love us? It's hard to answer. Whoever the object of his love is. Unless that's talking about the father loving the son. As the gospel of John does. The glory of Jacob. Whom he, whom he loves. God has ascended with a shout. The Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Now, also, you notice that in a lot of these instances, a trumpet was sounded when those kings came to the throne. So everything in this kind of lends the fact that God is being recognized and celebrated as king. Here. It seems like it, it, it does ascended uh, with a shout that it seems like that somehow he is viewed as um, taking the throne of something of that nature, and of course, you, you may think as we we always try to end with how these psalms <laughs> point to Jesus, uh, this may have some bearing on that, and so we may try to we may try to deal with that a little bit more, Gary. Good. At the end. But, um, Boyd a moment ago said, when you read the Psalm, what does it say? What, 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 something that stands out right first? It says, sing praises. And, um, no verse illustrates that better than verse 6. You know, in Hebrew, there are six words in verse 6. And four of them are sing praises. So, four of the six words in this verse in the original language are sing praises. Sing praise to God, sing praises. Sing praise to our King, sing praises. So, Right at the center of this psalm, this king is one that is to be praised. He's one to be celebrated. And the fact God is celebrated as king means he is not a tyrant. He is a God of love. He is a gracious God. He is a compassionate God. In verse 7, God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The peoples of the princes of the peoples have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Uh, several things to say: the last word. Of the psalm, the last word of the psalm uh, states about God being uh, highly exalted. Um, This is (coughs) this is a different form, Gary, of your same word in forty-seven five ascended. And it is also connected to the word uh, in verse 2, Most High. So God is the Most High God. God is speaking, spoken of as ascending or ascended. Uh, It's really past tense there in verse 5. And God is highly exalted in this particular passage. and we're we're kind of we're starting the back a little bit in verse nine and working forward, but the Bible says for the shields of the earth, the shields of the earth belong to God. Now shields can just mean those military weapons we think of as as shields, but shields can also be used. Let's listen to this passage. This is Psalm eighty nine, verse eighteen. For our shield belongs to God, and our King to the Holy One of Israel. How is the word shield used there? It's parallelism with the term king. And so when it says the shields of the earth belong to God, it may be the weapons... The weapons of warfare, which, which we know were mentioned in Psalm 46 is God breaking the bow and cutting the spear in two. But, but it could be too, the kings of the earth belong to God. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. The Old Testament uses that term to refer to, um, for example, the king of Persia was called, called himself the king of kings in Ezra 7. But Jesus is the one who really fits this title. But but in verse 9, one of the things that's real interesting to me is the people of God in this passage seem to encompass seem to encompass the people from all the nations. The princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham. Now you remember that in the promises of God to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that God emphasizes that in Abraham all nations would be blessed. All nations would be blessed. Here in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 72, in verse 17, May His name endure, may His name increase as long as the sun shines, and let men bless themselves by Him. Let all nations call Him blessed. Now this is talking about a king... Of Israel. This is one of the royal Psalms. But it talks about all the nations being blessed through the one from the line of David who serves as king. But this is kind of an indication in the Old Testament that ultimately God's promises. Uh, to Abraham, and that God's goal is to encompass all people and all nations among His people. Do you remember when Isaiah says, in the last days the mountain of the Lord will be established, top of the hills, in all nations. Will flow into it. And they will say, Come, let us go to the God of Jacob. Let us teach, let him teach us of his ways and let us walk in his paths. Some have suggested that it may have been, it may have been a practice of some of the nations around Israel, if they were on good terms with Israel at the time, to attend some of these feasts in Jerusalem, just to, to to be represented there. You're a representative from this nation who is coming to the temple of God. But Isaiah 2 is talking about more than that. Isaiah 2 is talking about these people who are not going to come simply to see and be seen, but who will be worshipping the Lord. And all nations will bow before Him. And verse 9 seems to paint that same picture. Now what other questions or thoughts do you have before we kind of pull some things together? Anything? So
3: I had a question I mean, you, you've been talking about it, but I was questioning why have the why have the princes of the people assembled themselves? Um, and, is is it, it is is it intended to be some sort of a, a reversal? You know, is it is is it pointing to a, a time of reversal? You know, in in, in the Tower of Babel, God's God God scattered on
0: people. Yes, yes, and now they're coming to his presence to worship. And 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 uh, Wilson uh mentions the Tower of Babel a couple of times and and uses that kind of language in the NIV application commentary. This is a statement that Derek Kidner made that I thought was good. And he writes little on Psalm 47, two little pages, but as he always seems to do. There's going to be some of those things that are going to be very memorable. He said the innumerable princes and people are to become one people. The innumerable princes and peoples are to become one people. And they will no longer be outsiders, but within the covenant. This is implied in their being called the people of God, of the God of Abraham. It is the abundant fulfillment of the promise of Genesis 12, verse 3. It anticipates what Paul expounds of the inclusion of the Gentiles as Abraham's sons. It mentions Romans 4 and Galatians 3. Now, that is also tying in with how this psalm is fulfilled in the the New Testament. But you remember that Paul makes a point that Abraham believed God <coughs> and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, Really, Romans 4 is all based on that verse. When was that said to Abraham? When he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised? Uncircumcised. uncircumcised. What are the implications of that? That he is the father of all who believe, who are circumcised yes. and uncircumcised. He's the father of all who believe regardless of their circumcision state. And to Paul, that reveals that God's intent was always to use Israel as a way to bless all nations and to bring all nations to Him. Galatians 3 does the same kind of thing um, Galatians 3 is um, built on um, Genesis 15, verse 6, uh, to some degree preached before the good news to Abraham that in you all nations will be blessed, Genesis 12, verse 3. But before we get to what the psalm says about Jesus and its fulfillment in the New Testament, what would you say about what this psalm just teaches us about God. What does it teach us about His nature? What does it teach us about who He is? Do you have a thought? Boy, you were looking about. you want to read something there, it looks like. I've
1: I've, I've, I've just got the text here. Okay. You see, He's King over all the earth. Okay. The glory of Jacob. He chooses our inheritance for us.
0: Okay. okay. Supreme. Okay. He's he's overall. Now, is it easy for us to just say, oh yeah, we, we, we already know that. Do you think any of us understand the implication that God is the ruler of this world? I, I, I don't think I do. I don't think I do. If we really believe That God is king. And that he rules over all. And it's before him that we will stand. And if he is pleased with us, everything's okay. Are we going to be very worried about who does or doesn't like us? That's not going to make a lot of difference. If we're truly lost in the concept that God is King. And I feel like when I say something like that, I should always say, the Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe it, but I'm not there yet as far as recognizing the impact of that, David.
1: Yeah. We let ourselves get upset by things that happen in the world. And they can be things that are you know, bad and, you know, it are upsetting, but we—I think—we tend not to think about well. God is really in control. Yes. Uh, case in point: What's going on in the Ukraine? Yes. Uh, you know, we get really upset by yeah. the, the reports that we hear and innocent people being killed and yes, tortured and all that, uh, and we don't understand why, but we do need to understand God is ultimately in control and He will cause to happen what He deems as best.
0: Yes. And and I know you're in agreement with this fact, uh, not presenting this as if I'm the only one who's figured this out. I understand totally what you're saying and yet I still think that seems like a long way away from our world, to some degree. You know, we're a lot safer with the battle in Ukraine than we would be if it was around this area. And and uh, but and while we ought to be, we ought to be outraged by injustice. We have to realize that we believe one day injustices will be set straight. And that what's happening here, as painful as it is for some, and as triumphant as some are seeming to be who are wicked, God is going to reverse that in such a way that this moment is not going to be the significant moment and um, may God but God help us all to realize that, but you 're right and and sometimes David, I was thinking too, when you were saying that it 's not just the big things that throw us off. it is as one person made an observation on Facebook one day that, that I thought was profound, he says it just takes a trifle to to make us delirious sometimes with happiness because it just takes a trifle to upset us, and um and I knew that because that day I had been delirious over um a recruit that had signed with my school. But anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> it was somewhat a review. It wasn't even meaning to be. Uh, but um but but it teaches us that God is king and God is worthy of our praise and worthy of our focus and God deserves our attention. Now let's let's look at how Psalm 47 finds fulfillment in Jesus. Now, the most obvious way is very clear. Obviously, Jesus is going to fulfill Psalm 47 how?
2: King. He's king.
0: Jesus is king. He is proclaimed King in Matthew 2, verse 2. Originally, in the book of Matthew, by Gentile. As wise men come from the east and says, Where is he who is born King of the Jews? Do you know the next time that phrase King of the Jews is used in the book of Matthew? It's not till Jesus' trial before Pilate. Are you the King of Jews? of the Jews. And I use that last point to stress this. If you get a... And I have this... I have some examples in my notes. If you want me to send them to you afterwards, I will. But if you just go through a concordance and you look for passages in the New Testament that speak of Jesus as King, there's going to be a heavy concentration of those passages around the cross. Jesus is king. His throne is the cross to some degree from which He dispenses mercy. Now, again, that is a thought beyond my ability to get my arms around. And He is a king of all nations. Jesus said, All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and teach. All nations. He rules over all nations. He rules over all peoples. His kingdom is not limited to those who voluntarily surrender to His will, the church. But His kingdom in some senses encompasses even those in the world who do not follow Him. Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Also in Matthew 25 and verse 32, Before Him are gathered all nations, and He separates them one from another, as a shepherd divides the sheep. From the goats. So He is King now. And He calls us to bring forth the message of salvation. That men could be saved. That men uh, could be spared uh, destruction. But one day, He will show Himself as King, as judge. He will show Himself as King in that way. The word that is used in verse 1 in the Septuagint. The word joy... In the Septuagint, in chapter 47, verse 1, in this abbreviation of, of Septuagint, it's used five times in the New Testament. Five times. One of them is the birth of, of uh, the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, but it's also used when the babe leaped in my womb, Elizabeth says to Mary. So it's used to talk about the joy at the fact that Jesus is coming into the world. It is used to talk about the gladness and joy of the early church in Acts 2 and verse 46. And it's used in Hebrews 1 and verse 9 to talk about Jesus. Uh, Jesus being anointed with the oil of gladness or with the oil of joy. Now, Gary asked earlier about the word ascended. And this particular word in 47, verse 5, the word that's used in the Greek translation, is used of the ascension of Christ in John 20 and verse 17. Twice in John 20, verse 17. Then in Acts 3, verse 24. For uh, David did not ascend into heaven, but Christ ascended into heaven. He quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. And also Ephesians 4, verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10 all use this term. Now... Among those who have in in um, churches that they'll have a liturgy that they'll read every year at a particular time on the day uh, that they believe is the day of ascension, they read Psalm 47. And uh, the church, and, and this was a statement by McCann uh, in his commentary, the church therefore claims that the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus represent the essential claim of Psalm 47, that God rules the world and lovingly claims all the world's peoples. Now, that doesn't so much answer everything about your question, Gary. Uh, uh, the only psalm that comes close to that statement, I think, is kind of Psalm 68, verse 18. Yeah. Uh, which says You have ascended on high, you have led captive uh, captives, and that of course is the passage that 's being quoted in Ephesians four when he led um, cap- captivity captive and gave gifts to men and gives the apostles and prophets but but yes um, and there were there were some uh, theories that came as a result of this by some who studied the Psalms that, that Psalm 47 was acted out every year and they moved the Ark of the Covenant back into the uh, holy place as a sign that God was king again but there's no real proof that happened a lot of the authors who appealed to that or, or talked about that got those ideas from Babylonian parallels. Um, but they do celebrate in song, God is King. And what would have been specifically on their mind is the time of ascension in this passage. Uh, it's hard to pinpoint. But we can, of course, pinpoint a specific time in which Jesus ascended. Mary?
1: Um, was it time, I'm thinking of Daniel 7 where He came in the clouds. Received the kingdom, and all the peoples, nations, and languages served him.
0: Yeah, it's a powerful passage in Daniel seven. And uh, yes, he came to the ancient of days. And um, uh, yes, I'm not adding anything to your comment on the passage. But Daniel seven thirteen and fourteen is a uh, a good passage to compare it to. It doesn't use the word ascended, but it but it's the same. Same kind of idea of the Son of Man ascending to the ancient of days. Um,
3: you mentioned the Ark. It does the whole, this whole thing makes me think about the return of the Ark uh, under David. Yes, First uh, Chronicles fifteen and sixteen. The shouting, the celebrating, absolutely. Uh, God, so, God's presence returning to the people.
0: Yes, you also see it in Second Samuel six fifteen and sixteen. But you're right. Uh, and I should have mentioned that before. You're exactly right. But I-, I want you to think about this. Now we we can point out some things. I'm sure I'm missing some points about how Jesus is is um king. Um but think about forty seven three. Under Yes please, on the He must reign till He has put all enemies underneath His feet. And the last enemy underneath to be put under His feet is what? Death.
2: Death. I
0: think in a certain way, you can tell the Gospel story through each of these psalms. (laughs) And you see Jesus is King. Jesus ascending. Jesus is going to reign till He has put all enemies Underneath uh, his feet. And uh, it is interesting to me. Verse 7, or excuse me, verse 6 mentions, no, it's verse 5. I'll get it right after a while. Verse 5 the Lord will sound the trumpet. The Bible speaks of when Jesus returns the last trumpet, the voice of an archangel. The, uh, how's it say it in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16? The Lord Himself shall descend with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. Uh, and the Bible talks about it, the last trumpet. we shall; Those who are alive will be changed and those who are dead will be raised. Uh, one of the times I was teaching First Corinthians or First Thessalonians. I'm not sure when I first made this list. But one commentary just went into all the cases in the Old Testament where you saw trumpets blown. And how that informs us about these statements about the trumpet that will be sounded when Jesus comes. One is that you you saw the trumpet sound at a call to battle. And I can send this out again. I can send this to you if you want me to with the specific verses given. But I have verses for all of this. The trumpet sounded at a call to battle. The, the trumpet sounded to tell the forces to stop at the conclusion of a battle. A trumpet sounded at the announcing... As we've already seen today, announcing of the reign of a new king, we saw that with Solomon's case in First Kings one verse thirty-nine, among other places, and it calls announcing a jubilee. Now, this is an easy list because it's only one verse, Leviticus twenty-five verses 9 and 10 in the year of Jubilee was announced it was announced with the sounding of trumpets and to call captives back home to worship now how many of those do you think inform us a little bit about the second coming I don't think of the second coming so much as being a called battle but kind of a conclusion of a battle. Battle is over and the victory is won and a new king, he's always been king but now everybody knows it and all that the jubilee was meant to represent, it points to the forgiveness of Christ but it points to that grand time of final jubilee and all God's people who have been scattered be called back to worship. But I'll be again, I'll be glad to send any of these things if if you want them. But all of this might be involved in the sounding of the trumpet. What what other things did you see that we should have mentioned? Did you have something, Gary? You. anybody else don't, don't, you don't need to look like y'all have a thought because <laughs> they may just call on you you know what they say it's a person deep in thought everybody trying to look thoughtless now
2: <laughs> I don't
0: know I don't know Christy's told me I do sometimes so Any, anything else um, it is interesting to me too that this psalm about God as king it's it's between two themes two psalms that talk about God's city mm-hmm. and again there's got to be some significance to that though I'm not sure what it is on S- Psalm 48 next week we plan to talk about the city of God Um. And we we plan to talk about that concept of a city. It may take us... It may take us a separate lesson. If so, we'll do it after this. To just talk about that concept of the city of God throughout Scripture. And uh, so we may have an additional lesson that may... We may cover between 48 and 49 if we don't think we can compress it all into one. But a lot of my ideas I have to acknowledge I got from Phil Roberts but um, who built the first city in the Bible? Ever thought about that? Uh, Cain. Cain. Probably a bad sign. Right. You know you think. Um, so but that's just to see the idea generally associated with cities and then to see the idea of a city of God, it, it can be a powerful, can be a powerful concept. But anyway, thank you. Thank you so much for for being here. Would um, you want to lead us in closing prayer? Anyway? Okay. That's right. Dear God, thank you for
3: letting us uh, come together and... Uh, learn more about you and study your word and help us all to have learned something and help us all to uh, be safe as we go home and uh, help us not to leave you here and help us to let the light shine and share the gospel in Jesus name, amen amen, amen
0: Amen. John's the latest song does anybody not have a uh,
3: song that needs one I don't know that I've ever sung. Oh God, our helping angels. Too hard. Uh, let's look at the words together. Uh, All peoples, clap your hands for joy to God in triumphant shout. In triumph, shout for awesome is the Lord, most high, great King, the earth throughout. He brings the peoples under us in mastery complete, and He it is. "...who nations all subdues beneath our feet. The land of our inheritance He chooses out for us, and He to us the glory gives of Jacob, whom He loves. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with trumpeting. Sing praises unto God, sing praise, sing praises to our King. For God is King of all the earth." Sing praise with skillfulness. God rules the nations. God sits on His throne of holiness. Assemble, men of Abram's God. Come, people, princes nigh. The shields of earth belong to God. He is exalted high. That was nice. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, do, me, so, we're going to sow me, do do
2: do do da, 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 Do, me, so,
3: all people. Let's try it again. Do, me, so, me. All peoples clap your
2: hands for joy to God in triumph shout. For awesome is the Lord most high, King of the world. He brings the people The land of our inheritance He chooses out for